From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, tariffs, the import tax some politicians love, but nearly all economists hate. Children of the 80s, remember this scene? In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the, anyone, anyone? That's Ben Stein, real-life expert on the economy and former speechwriter for Nixon, speaking about the Smoot-Hawley Act in the John Hughes classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Which, anyone raised or lowered raised tariffs in an effort to collect... While Smoot-Hawley may have seemed like boring ancient history back in 1986, it's become a hot topic again in the wake of President Trump's rash of tariffs against China, which began over the summer. Let me be clear. These tariffs are totally unacceptable. Canada is retaliating, announcing dollar-for-dollar tariffs on U.S. goods and services, including imported steel and aluminum, as well as items like coffee, yogurt, and maple syrup. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau... In imposing them, he used decades-old pro-tariff arguments, like protecting American manufacturing jobs. They do is they dump massive amounts of product in our country, and it just kills, it destroys our companies and our jobs. And that's been happening for so many years. So how did Smoot-Hawley fare in saving jobs and boosting the domestic economy? And what does it tell us about today's trade wars? For this episode, we're revisiting a conversation we had back in August with Dartmouth economics professor Douglas Irwin. He's the author of the book Clashing Over Commerce, a history of U.S. trade policy. So we are going to talk about the last great trade war. I think a lot of Americans maybe have vaguely heard of Smoot-Hawley. And I'd love for you to set up for us the conditions by which the Smoot-Hawley Act came about. Sure. Well, I presume everyone's heard of the Roaring Twenties. The Twenties was actually a very good decade for the U.S. economy overall. Uh, Rapid growth, uh, electricity was spreading, radio was a new innovation at the time. People were buying cars. So the economy was doing fairly well in the 1920s, except for the farm sector, which, unlike today, employed a a big chunk of the labor force. It was a bigger part of the economy back then. And agricultural prices were pretty low during the 1920s. They had been bumped up a lot during World War I, which had caused a lot of farmers to go into debt and expand their farms, presuming those high prices would remain for some time. But the prices in the 20s were low, so there's a lot of uh, foreclosures, a lot of distress in the farming sector. There was a presidential election in 1928, and the Republicans had sort of groped for some sort of way of helping out farmers throughout the 1920s and and without much success. So Congress had passed some uh, price supports in the mid-1920s, but President Calvin Coolidge, also a Republican, had vetoed those on the grounds that it wasn't the right thing to do and uh, maybe was even unconstitutional. So just handing uh, farmers income through price supports, that wasn't going to work. And so they came back upon sort of an old uh, feature of U.S. trade politics, which is a higher tariff, imposing a a tax on imports as a way of raising those farm prices. And this was sort of unveiled in the 1928 election, and that's sort of where the ball got going. So here we are in the 1928 election. Farmers aren't doing as well as they might be, but everyone else is doing fine. And the Great Depression isn't even an inkling. That's right. The economy was booming. The stock prices were still going up. 
the Federal Reserve was tightening credit a little bit to sort of slow the economy down because it was doing so well. And it really wasn't until the summer of 1929 that we uh, sort of reached the peak of the business cycle. And then, of course, there was the stock market crash in the fall of 1929. But by then, uh, the Smoot-Hawley tariff had already been passed by the House and was well underway in terms of being considered in the Senate. But here we are. We started with agriculture. But the thing about Smoot-Hawley is that it's not just agriculture. By the time it chugs its way through the House of Representatives and through the Senate, it's now adds up to almost 900 products. Is that correct? That's right. The idea was we want to help out farmers. But when you introduce the legislation into the Congress, of course, there's all sorts of other factors that get thrown into the mix. And particularly in the House, where uh, urban areas with a lot of population were more heavily represented than in the Senate, where agricultural states had stronger weight, uh, those urban districts wanted protection for manufacturing plants in New York City and elsewhere as well. So when the bill was passed by the House, it included higher tariffs on many manufactured goods as well as on farm goods, which created some problems in the Senate because that's where the agricultural interests said, hey, wait, this was designed to help us, not help out the big eastern uh, conglomerates and manufacturers who we farmers actually have to buy from, and we don't want to in- pay uh, inflated prices. So in the Senate, things became much more tricky in terms of passage because there was this big fight between the rural interests and the more manufacturing-oriented interests. I mean, some crazy things are added, you know, goldfish and clothespins. How do those get added on? It's just sort of backroom training? Yes, exactly. So uh, before it was passed by the House, it was the legislation was written up by the House Ways and Means Committee. And that is sort of a black box. You know, the House Ways and Means Committee, of course, held hearings, but how they actually drafted the legislation and which rates they put in, that's all backroom deals. And among the just the Republican members of that committee. And then it's really presented to the House, and then the House leadership says, it's time to pass this bill. Did it have a nationalistic edge to it at the outset, or is that something that sort of develops over time, or is it not nationalistic at all? Actually, I mean, compared to today where people talk about the president and tariffs being imposed for economic nationalist purposes or to strengthen the American economy, tariff legislation was sort of more routine back then. You know, There wasn't a lot of other things the federal government was taxing, and, and aside from income, and there weren't big debates over where the spending was going to go. So tariff policy was still a major issue, but it wasn't sort of infused with the uh, emotion of uh, getting back at other countries so much. It was more, are we trying to help out farm interests or are we trying to help out manufacturing interests? It was very much more domestically focused than saying we want to stick it to other countries and other countries are taking advantage of us and we need to protect our economy from the rest of the world. Partly because the U.S. at that time in the 1920s was the world's largest economy, um, the economy was doing very well. It's not like we were in a recession yet or we're being besieged by imports. If you take the story back a little bit before World War I, then there was more of a nationalist tone to tariffs because Britain was sort of the industrial leader and sometimes the economy wasn't doing so well. Can you explain, it's, it's a pretty basic question, but the difference between a tariff and a tax and, and how they've been used in history? Sure. Well, a tariff is a tax. So it's just a tax, though, that's being levied on imports, on foreign goods when they cross the U.S. border and try to get into the country. And so what that tax does is, of course, it makes those uh, imports more scarce, um, more costly, and then that gives scope for domestic producers to take over more of the market. Um, Their prices will go up as well because um, they're sort of less competition in the market by keeping out foreign producers, but it's a tax at the border on foreign goods coming in. So... The economy is doing fine, except for farmers, and that's not nothing because a huge number of Americans are still farmers in the 20s. 
But the economy starts to not do fine, and I understand it passes the House, but all of a sudden, by the time it's working its way through Senate and making its way to the White House, things have radically changed. Yeah, so we had the stock market crash in October of 1929. The Senate was still considering it then. Um, there's a recess over the Christmas break, and then they, the Senate picks it up again in early 1930. But at this point, still, there's no sense that we were entering into uh, the Great Depression. It was a downturn. The economy was moving into a recession. But it wasn't this huge economic cataclysm, uh, this downward spiral quite yet. Uh, that happens a little bit later in 1930 when the first banks start to fail. So there's a definitely softening in the economy, and that uh, created some support, more support for the tariff. But it wasn't like the Great Depression had, you know, hit us over the head in the fall of 1929 or early 1930. It really was a little bit more of a gradual process. We just The economy kept on getting worse and worse and sinking lower and lower. So as it's making it way, its way through our various levels of legislation. What are Americans thinking about it? Is there a sense that it's happening? Yes, it was the major piece of legislation that Congress was considering during this time, and it got a lot of attention in the press. Um, The press, mainly in cities, was uh, very much against it. They worried that, as did many economists at the the time, that it would affect U.S. exports as well, um, either directly or indirectly, if foreign countries retaliated. Uh, There was a sense that it would be counterproductive because the reason why uh, the economy was softening, well, first of all, when the economy was doing well, people would say there's no reason for it. And second of all, when uh, the economy was softening, they'd say it's not really going to help the situation because trade is not really the cause of why the economy is uh, getting weaker. But there's still a debate among agricultural producers about whether the tariff would really help them because actually uh, we were still big exporters of wheat and corn and other commodities. So there's a lot of controversy in rural America saying, gee, you know, you say you're trying to help us, but you're not really helping us because we're dependent on these export markets. And the tariff does nothing to help increase prices for us or expand our exports. Was there concern about retaliation from other countries? There was some concern expressed, but the U.S. had raised tariffs in the past without much retaliation. So the current concern was evident in the debate, but it wasn't a major concern. So it makes its way through... Goldfish are added, clothespins are added, it's tweaked by the Senate, but it makes its way up to Hoover. Yep, it makes its way up to him, I think, in uh, uh, May or June of uh, 1930. You know, there was really very little thought that the president might veto it. We had unified government. The House was uh, controlled by the Republicans, the Senate was controlled by Republicans, and President Hoover was a Republican. And there was pretty much party unity on the fact that uh, they wanted a higher tariff. So the president uh, didn't sign it immediately. Uh, There was some pause, but he was actually flooded with a lot of opponents saying you should reject the bill and veto it, including a petition signed by over 1,000 American economists saying it would be a bad idea. You know, I saw that number, about 1,000 economists petitioning Hoover. And I'm curious, how often are economists that unified in a position? And why does it tend to be around tariffs? Uh, it's very rare, uh, particularly when you go back then, 1,000 economists, that's a lot. Uh, even today, it's it's quite a big number. But back then, that's a huge uh, number of uh, academics and, and business economists and others uh, signing this petition. So um, it's quite a remarkable uh, fact that that came about. I think that more than, say, macroeconomic policy, where you can get a lot of divergent views about, you know, should their government spend more to help prop up the economy and prime the pump, Going all the way back to Adam Smith in the 1776 book, uh, Wealth of Nations, economists have pretty much always said that open, freer trade is is a good thing for an economy. Yes, there are going to be certain uh, sectors that are going to be 
adversely affected by imports, but overall the economy will, will benefit. So they petition him, but it has no impact. Or, or maybe he thinks about it, but he doesn't veto it. And it goes into effect when? Mid-June 1930, um, like the 15th or 16th. And of course, he signed it, I, I believe, in some afternoon. And at midnight that night, any foreign ship coming in, trying to offload its goods, the tax would hit. So what's the American response? Well, the American response is that, you know, we impose this tax, tax rate goes up. Um, we can trace in the monthly trade date of the period that uh, imports fall, at least those imports subject to the duties. A lot of imports were not affected. They were either duty-free um, because there was no domestic production. So we import uh, coffee, tea, bananas, tin. We don't really produce those things, so we never really taxed those imports or hadn't since the Civil War, um, and those tariffs didn't change. So a lot of imports weren't affected, but those that were affected declined uh, in value and in, in volume. How quickly is there a response from our trade partners? In the case of most countries, uh, very quickly. They had been protesting uh, as it had been working its way through Congress and issuing possible threats of retaliations. Particularly European countries were very upset because they had war debts to pay to the U.S. uh, in dollars. Mm -hmm. And the only way they could earn those dollars to pay back their debts was by exporting to the U.S. and earning those dollars. And so they thought that would interfere with uh, their ability to pay back those debts. Um, They made that case, which is one reason why... uh, um, New York banking industry was very much against the tariff as well. They want their debts repaid. But the country that was, I think, most adversely affected was our biggest trading partner, Canada. Canada was very dependent on the U.S. market, as they are today, where they're clearly their major export market. They were hit quite hard by these tariffs, and it was a major political issue in Canada for many months as it was going through Congress. And they responded almost immediately by raising tariffs on U.S. goods. And in fact, Sort of the tariff had this lasting impact throughout the summer of 1930. They had elections later that year, and basically both political parties were trying to outdo one another and saying, well, we will be tougher against the Americans than the other side will be. And the uh, relatively pro-American government at the time lost the election to uh, the conservative party in Canada, which said we are going to retaliate even harder against the United States, and we're going to go into a trade block or have a trade agreement with Britain sort of an anti-American trade block to uh, keep trade away from America and keep it within ourselves. In other words, if America won't buy our goods, we won't buy their goods either. And what are the goods that Canada was exporting to the United States? And what kind of impact did that have on American industry? A lot of them were um, their agricultural products. When you think about uh, America's uh, production of wheat or eggs or milk or uh, things of that sort, imports from Canada were really a tiny fraction of our consumption or our domestic production. But they were a big part of what uh, Canada's economy was. And so that's why they uh, struck back so fiercely, because even though it didn't make too much of a difference to the U.S. economy, it had a big impact on their economy. And uh, what they did in the case of eggs, there's a famous case where they raised their tariff on eggs to match the U.S. tariff. Um, We actually exported many more eggs to Canada than we imported. So our exports plummeted. Uh, whereas the imports that were affected by the Smoot-Hawley duties were relatively small in number. They didn't quite realize that actually they were much more vulnerable to uh, being closed out of the Canadian market since we sold so many more eggs to uh, Canada than we bought from them. And that's sort of in a microcosm, an impact of the retaliation, that uh, when other countries raised their tariffs against U.S. goods, it really dealt a blow to U.S. exports. This episode of First Person is brought to you by the Fletcher School's Master of International Business program at Tufts University. 
where the MBA meets the world. Today's business professionals should be well-versed not only in management and strategy, but also in the complex issues that impact businesses today. That way, they can understand not just how markets work, but why they work. From social impact to economic stability to environmental factors, MIB students gain contextual intelligence, helping them confront the complicated realities of an interconnected world. Learn more and view a virtual information session at fletcher.tufts.edu business. What was the total impact on the U.S. economy at that point? This is where things get tricky. So, um, yes, we're blocking imports. So we may be creating some jobs in import-competing sectors because they don't face that foreign competition. But you're also losing jobs because our exports are going down as well. And those exports can be manufactured goods. They could be some of the farm goods that we just spoke about in terms of eggs. And so when you're trying to say, did we gain or lose more jobs as a result of this, it's very difficult to say. But just understanding that impact, that uh, their jobs behind exports, goes against a lot of the claims that the tariff supporters were making at the time, where they would only focus on the jobs created as a result of keeping imports out mm-hmm. and ignoring the jobs created by exports. And so overall, it probably didn't have an overall net impact on jobs significantly. But because it sort of constricted U.S. trade overall, it might have contributed to uh, the economic downturn that we were going through at the time. You mentioned that Canada and the U.K. joint forces, they're not the only ones. Right. There were riots in uh, Cuba um, because we raised the tariff on sugar, and the U.S. was their major market, and the Cuban economy was very dependent on exports of sugar. And some people say it led to a revolution there just a few years later because of all the unrest due to the uh, very poor performance of the uh, Cuban economy um, because of falling sugar prices. But a lot of other countries as well um, retaliated, sometimes formally, sometimes informally, Uh, sort of the way we see China doing it today where they don't actually raise a tax on U.S. goods, but all of a sudden Chinese consumers stop buying U.S. products. Well, there's evidence that happened in Italy and Switzerland and Spain where there's sort of a boycott uh, American products because they haven't treated our goods very well. So, and one thing I want to clear up quickly is if you've heard of the Smoot-Hawley Act, you may have assumed it triggered the Great Depression, and that's wrong. That's right. So the debate really among economists and economic historians is, Did it intensify the Great Depression? Did it possibly ameliorate it in some ways? It doesn't really uh, account for the trajectory of the economy. The economy was going down mainly for monetary factors, financial factors, a lot of bank failures and things of that sort, Um, and trade fell along with it. But I don't think anyone, uh, at least among economists, thinks it caused the Great Depression. It's more, you know, did it make it a little bit more severe than it otherwise would have been? How quickly did politicians realize that the retaliation and the impact might be worsening, or or did they fear it was worsening the Depression? Well, just like today, it was a very partisan era in some sense. And so all the Republicans said, uh, who were defending the act, would say, you know, the retaliation has been overstated, or it doesn't really matter because we've uh, stopped imports from coming in and created all these jobs. And Democrats, who tended at that time to represent more rural uh, farm communities, would say, this has hurt U.S. exports. It's not been good for the economy overall. And so it didn't really change anyone's minds. Uh, They just sort of dug deeper into their trenches and debated about impact after the fact. At what point did people start to think of it as a trade war? 
pretty quickly because uh, the Canadian retaliation happened, uh, you know, right off the bat. Mm -hmm. um, and then they did a second retaliation later in 1930. So certainly within three to six months of the passage of Smoot-Hawley, the exporters felt the uh, impact in terms of retaliation and that politicians were aware that there was a big foreign blowback against what the U.S. had done. And how long... I mean, the impact of Smoot-Hawley lasted many, many, many years. How long did it take to kind of unwind it? That's a very interesting question because it actually took probably more than a decade for a couple of reasons. First of all, the U.S. tariffs went up at that time, and it took a while through various uh, ways of trying to get it back down to where it had been before. But the bigger problem was is that when other countries retaliated and they formed these trade blocks, once those trade blocks are established— um, they're very reluctant to undo that even after U.S. tariffs had come down because they get vested interests behind them, because they're still sort of upset at the U.S. And that's one reason why uh, it really took after World War II, so more than a decade later, for the U.S. to start these international negotiations to start reducing tariffs and, and level the playing field one more time. What, what do you think the legacy is of Smoot-Hawley? Uh, because we seem to be entering another trade war. Yeah, I think it, it's sort of egg on the face of the tariff proponents. They said, you know, this will help strengthen the farm economy and uh, create more jobs. And, of course, partly for reasons outside of smooth like itself, the aftermath was exactly the opposite. The farm economy was devastated in the 1930s, and uh, the overall U.S. economy did very poorly. So predictions of good things that will happen after uh, raising tariffs, they just didn't materialize. Another lesson is, is that Congress handles tariffs sort of ineptly um, when they're trying to set all the rates on thousands of individual products. In fact, Smoot-Hawley was the last time Congress set all these tariff rates on imports. They began to delegate those powers to the president uh, starting in the mid-1930s. And also just not taking into account the foreign reaction to uh, what everyone thought at the time was purely domestic legislation. There was tremendous foreign retaliation that really negated sort of any help that it would bring to the economy. Uh, so that's sort of a lesson there as well. And we see a lot of these things in play today in terms of whether it's going to be retaliation, uh, have too much power been extended to uh, the president uh, as it was done after Smoot-Hawley, uh, and things of that sort. You know, now Smoot-Hawley all of a sudden has become, uh, again, sort of their, their names are raised again and again. Did, did the legacies of the two men who sponsored the legislation, did they ever recover? Uh, well, both were actually kicked out of Congress just a few years later by their constituents. I think one didn't uh, win their primary and another lost in the uh, general election of 1932. You know, they were not safe seats by any uh, stretch of the imagination, and, and I think they did pay a price a bit for going out in front so much in terms of saying the Smoot-Hawley tariff will make the economy stronger when, in fact, we went into the Great Depression and everything got uh, worse and, and got the economy got weaker. But it took a little bit of time for other Republicans to see that, uh, that trade wars such as that, what we experienced in the 1930s, are, are bad things. By the end of the 1930s, I'd say those who had voted in favor of Smoot-Hawley, you know, they wouldn't necessarily say it was the wrong thing, but they were willing to say that Congress doesn't deal with trade policy very well, and therefore things should be uh, uh, given to the president to decide um, under certain conditions. And so that's the main reason why Smoot-Hawley was the last tariff act passed by Congress is they just didn't want to deal with the, the political upheaval that follows any time that you try to revise 3,000 duties on imports. You're not going to make anyone happy, and uh, there's could be blowback from other countries. So just hand it to the president and uh, let uh, that person decide. What do you think would be the worst-case scenario currently? I think the worst-case scenario would be that um, if the president decides – 
we're now going to impose a 20% tax on all imported automobiles, and then we're going to move forward from that and start imposing more tariffs on more big chunks of imports uh, against other countries and not differentiating between China, where I think we do have a trade problem, and our allies, Canada, Mexico, uh, Western Europe, Japan, Korea, and alienate them as well. Um, you know, so for the past 70, 75 years or so, we've tried to work with our allies in uh, Western Europe and East Asia to try to uh, facilitate the flow of trade and, and level the playing field. And now the U.S. is sort of deliberately moving in another direction, raising tariffs against our friends and also um, not really negotiating to get rid of those tariff barriers that are affecting U.S. exports. Is there a unanimity again among economists that tariffs in this scenario are not the right choice? Uh, I'd say yes. Um, it's partly because, you know, we've worked so hard for so many years to try to uh, reduce European tariffs and reduce Japanese tariffs, and now we're sort of walking away from that system. Now, the reason why the Trump administration is doing this, there may be many reasons, but one is that we have a trade deficit. Mm -hmm. uh, we, may be, uh, we may have a large trade deficit, um, but that's not an indication that there's uh, not a level playing field or that tariffs are stacked against the U.S., it's more a reflection of, of where we are in terms of macroeconomics and capital flows. And so tariffs are sort of an inappropriate way to try to remedy a trade deficit, which is sort of the fundamental point of the uh, Trump administration's approach in some sense. Doug, if all the economists are against it, or let's say the majority, and presumably President Trump is being advised by economists, why is he going for it? Well, that applies not just in this instance, but probably many others. Uh, this is an issue on which the president has had very strong views going back many, many decades. So he was very strongly against uh, trade with Japan in the 1980s and thought we ought to take a stronger stance against them. He thought that they were destroying American industry and uh, ruining the U.S. economy. And that's been sort of a theme. It's just shifted from Japan in the 80s to China today. He also is sort of has this interest in uh, what I'd call 20th century industries, uh, cars, steel, things of that sort, and not so much in information technology and, and new products and new technology that we're going to be exporters of. You know, he's not listening to many advisors on this. They may have tempered him in terms of uh, immediately pulling out of NAFTA or, or uh, um, some other things or pushed him towards negotiating more with other countries rather than just reacting by imposing higher tariffs. But his, his gut instincts are trade deficits are really bad and other countries are taking advantage of us. And so I think all the economists in the world wouldn't be able to convince him otherwise. Uh, these are deeply held views. Uh, Doug, this has been super interesting, although also a little bit terrifying, uh, given what we may be facing. I really appreciate you breaking this down for us. No problem. It's been a pleasure. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. Um, I have recited it in the past. I haven't watched it uh, recently, but he said something like, in 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, <laughs> passed the Holly Smoot tariff, which anyone, <laughs> anyone, raised or lowered. And of course, no one's responding to this. They're just uh, completely inert. So he keeps throwing these questions back to the class. They're not responding at all. But he just continues on and answers this question and, and continues on his merry way. It's a great scene. I think I have to rewatch it. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.